Father, we want to initially come to You and just ask that You would free us from any improper or unhealthy grip that we have on the world or that the world has on us. Liberate us from that. And we, at the same time, ask You to help us have a grip on Your kingdom and that Your kingdom will have a grip on us. Father, help us to be built up in the faith. Armored with the Spirit of God. And that You will help us to go into battle every day with a message that You save sinners through Your sinless Son. And with that, Lord, we pray that You will illuminate Your Word to us this morning, that we may be equipped for the battle. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So, Jesus is a Savior who works for our good. He is a Savior who works for our good. He works. He is constantly working. He works to heal us from our brokenness. We are a broken people, physically and spiritually and mentally, and Jesus has come to work to heal us from our brokenness. He has come to free us from the bondage of our legalism. We, we set up rules and regulations and laws. And we, we try to keep those rules and regulations and laws and they end up becoming our God. And we submit to those things and we try to honor those things and then when we break them, we either deny that we break them or we pretend that we don't break them or then we, we forget about just breaking them and we look at other people and they say, well, they, they break worse rules than I break and so I'm still okay. And so Jesus has come just to, to free us from that kind of bondage. And then He has also come to cleanse us of our sinfulness. So just like when Joey prayed such a wonderfully awesome gospel prayer, we realize that the salvation that Christ has come to work for our behalf is a salvation that includes purity and wholeness and holiness and wonder and awesome might in His strength that allows us, it propels us to live the kind of life that God has called us to live. And so Jesus is always working. He's working to heal us and free us and cleanse us. And that was the message of John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17 last week. This, this man is lying by the pool. He's a, an invalid. He's paralyzed. And he's, he, he would love to be, to be uh, healed. But for 38 years, he has just been paralyzed and has had no opportunity to live life to its fullest. And so Jesus comes and says, do you want me to heal you? And he says, well, I don't, I don't have a way to get into the pool. And I'm thinking the pool could heal me, but I can't get in the pool because nobody will throw me in it. And Jesus says, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man literally gets up. He takes his mat on his shoulder and he walks away. And the only problem about that was what? It was on the Sabbath. It was on the Sabbath. 
and the Jewish religious leaders had people that were looking out for anybody who were going to be breaking the Sabbath, and they see this man who has been healed of 38 years of infirmity taking his mat and walking away, and they don't rejoice with him, they rebuke him. They rebuke him because he is, quote-unquote, working on the Sabbath according to the rules that they had made. And so ultimately what, what they find out is that it's not really the man that they should be so upset with. It's Jesus who they're upset with because Jesus is the one who worked on the Sabbath by healing him and then commanded him to work by walking away with the mat on his shoulder. So they're very upset with this man, Jesus, and, and he's confronted. And, and so let's, let's begin in, in chapter 5, verse 15. And we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter through 47. And, and church family, it's so important that you, you focus during this reading. The most important part of a sermon is the reading of the text of that sermon. And in particular, in this passage, it's extremely important. So don't think to yourself, okay, I'm going to listen to the reading of the Scripture, and then when the sermon gets here, I'm really going to focus. No, I want to ask you, please focus right now, because you will understand this passage so much better if you will focus your mind and your heart on the text. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory? from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What we just saw is Jesus' response to the Jewish leaders hatred of Him, and persecution of Him. And so, really, there are two aspects to what we just read. Okay? The first one is short, but is the, the galvanizing and motivating reason that Jesus says what He says. And so, the first thing that we see today is the reasons to loathe Jesus and kill Him. According to the Jewish leaders, of course. The reasons to loathe Jesus and to kill Him. And church, as you are putting on your Bible study glasses and you've got this heart that is desiring to understand truth, tell me, if there are two reasons that the Jewish leaders said, we loathe this man and we must kill him, what are those two reasons? He breaks the Sabbath... And he equates himself with God. He makes himself equal with God. That's it right there. 
Now, when they say he's breaking the Sabbath, he's not breaking God's Sabbath. He's breaking their Sabbath. The rules that they had made for the Sabbath day. The 39 rules that they detailed. And he's saying, he's breaking our Sabbath. Which, of course, they had confused with God's Sabbath because they believed that what they had added certainly belonged to God. So he's breaking the Sabbath. He's doing things that he's not supposed to do on the Sabbath. He's working on the Sabbath. We we can't have somebody breaking our rules, especially not a Jew, especially not a Jewish rabbi, quote-unquote. And then he's making himself equal with God because he's calling God his own what? Father, his own father. And like we said last week, no good Jew would call God his own father. Too intimate, implied too much communion, implied too much equality. And yet he calls God his own father. So because he's breaking our Sabbath, because he is making himself equal with God, we loathe him, we hate him, we are going to kill him. And so Jesus responds with what we will say are three reasons to love him and follow him. Three reasons to love him and follow him. And the first reason that Jesus would say, no, don't loathe me, don't hate me, but follow me, is because I have the authority of God. If you're taking notes right now, you need to write down. He professes the authority of God. He he, he proclaims, he professes the authority of God, the identity of God. And we see that, church, in this statement that he makes three times. This this almost pre-statement when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. You see it in verse 19, verse 24, and verse 25. It is where we get our word amen. Amen, amen, I say to you. He is saying in complete truth, I who am the holder of truth and the giver of truth am about to tell you the infallible truth. In other words, church, they say you're making yourself equal with God. We're going to kill you. And instead of cowering down, Jesus doubles down, and he says, oh, you don't even know the half of it. I'm God. I give truth. I'm about to tell you the truth, because that's who I am. He professes to possess the authority of God. All right, the second reason to love Jesus and to follow Jesus is that he practices the works of God. He practices the works of God. There there are a lot of details in his argumentation. And we we could look line by line. What I'm afraid is that we might... We might get lost in all of every single situation in line and we would be here for for hours. And so what I want to do is I want to summarize what he says kind of line by line. Okay, and so when he says, when we say he practices the works of God, if you can just maybe start in verse 19 and see, first of all, he does what the Father does. You see that? He, 
He says, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so the Father is God, and He does the works of God. I'm God, and I do the works of God. He's the Father, I'm the Son. Whatever He does is what I do. Jesus says He does what the Father does. And and then He does marvelous works. Look at verse 20. He says, man, I do a lot of wonderful things, but I'm going to do even more things that you may marvel, that you may be astonished, that you may be amazed at the things that I do. He performs marvelous works. Church, what are some marvelous works that led up to Jesus' murder? What what are some marvelous things that Jesus did? He did. He raised dead people. Lazarus, come forth. The man had been in the tomb for four days. That man came out of the tomb. That is a marvelous work. Yeah, that was marvelous. He just did it. Absolutely. He did. He turned water into wine. In John chapter 1 and 2, we we read, he he turns all of these, these massive barrels of water into the very best wine that people had ever put in their mouth. What? He did. He cast out demons. Demon-possessed people, he cast them out and threw them away, and then he made the people who were demon-possessed missionaries. Yeah, he's about to feed 5,000 people with a few fish and loaves. I mean, unbelievable, marvelous things, jaw-dropping things that Jesus does. And... I'll save that comment for just a few minutes, but he performs marvelous works. Okay, what else does he do? He raises the dead and gives them life. Uh, Susan's already pointed out, and that's exactly what he says that he does. What else does he do? He judges everyone who breathes. Verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I wonder, if, I wonder if the world truly, if they, if they just realized that they're going to be judged not by their own standards and not by a peer, but by the standards of God and by the Son of God one day, they might not change. He judges everyone who breathes. What else does He do? He gives life. To everyone who believes. Look at verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And Jesus makes dead people living people. And what we're talking about is spiritually speaking. He makes people who are dead in their trespasses and sins alive to God who love God and worship God and live for God and will have fellowship with God forever. Jesus does that. Any any person who has eternal life owes their life to the Lord Jesus. He oversees the final resurrection. This is important, church. Look at verse 27. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All, all, everyone. They're in the tombs, they will hear his voice and they will come out. And there are two resurrections. All right? One is a resurrection of life and the other is a resurrection of judgment. And those who believed in Jesus will have the resurrection of life and they will, as we say around here a lot, they will behold Jesus and they will become like Jesus and they will spend the rest of eternity with Jesus forever. That's the resurrection of life. But also at the same time, there's the resurrection of judgment. And every person who rejected the Lord Jesus, who said, no, we don't love you, we loathe you. We didn't worship you, we wanted to kill you. They will be resurrected again. There, there is no annihilation here. There is no ceasing to exist. No, there will be a resurrection and they will be cast into eternal judgment because they rejected the one and only Son of the Father. He oversees that final resurrection. And at the very same time, He honors His Father's position. He, look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see, He depends on His Father's guidance. He listens to His Father's voice. He focuses on His Father's will. I was sitting with, or standing with uh, Daniel at the coffee shop yesterday, and I was talking to him about the distinction of the Trinity. Sometimes we kind of like flatten out the Trinity and all we say is there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there is a, there is a reality, church, where the, the Trinity has many distinguishing forms. There is, is what theologians call the ontological Trinity. And what that means is ontology is the study of being. All right, just being, B-E-I-N-G. And so you have Father, Son, and Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God, one unity God. But then there's this, the, the Trinity of economy. And that is the function of the Trinity, the roles that each member of the Trinity possesses. And so the Father sends the Son to accomplish redemption. The Son actually accomplishes that redemption through submission to His Father. And then the Holy Spirit applies the work that the Son accomplished in redemption so that you and I can actually possess the redemption that Jesus came to function. That, that's the functionality of the Trinity. And so here, when Jesus says, I just do what the Father tells me to do. It's not my will, it's His will. He's not saying I'm less than God. No, He's saying I am God, but I have a function within the Trinity that I have to meet, that I have to accomplish. And so church, when we think about the reasons to love Jesus and to follow Jesus, even in, in these, these statements that He are making, we need to say Jesus is equal with God. Yes, He is even God, but He is, the, he is God the Father's Son and He functions in a way that God the Father has called Him and commissioned Him to function. And Jesus has taken all authority to execute judgment, he has taken all authority to bring life to spiritually dead people, and He has taken authority to exercise utter and final judgment in the final resurrection. And for those reasons, 
We need to bow before the Lord Jesus and say, you are who you say you are. You have done what you said you were doing. And you are the judge and the Lord of glory. We bow before you. Let me give you the third reason to love Jesus and follow Him. We see it in the rest of the passage, 31 to 47. He possesses the affirmation of God. He possesses the affirmation of God. Okay, so he professes the authority of God. He practices the works of God. And now we see that he possesses the affirmation of God. Now, let's just walk through it and I'll, I'll, I'll make some statements here about what, what we see. In verse 31 he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And some of you Bible studiers are thinking, man, he goes on in the Gospel of John and he gives testimony about himself, right? He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the gate for the sheep. I mean, he goes on and on and makes statements about himself. But in this setting, this is a, a legal setting. This is a formal, legal, courtroom type of setting. And so he's setting forth a courtroom type of testimony and defense. It's almost like if you were to go to the bank and you're maybe getting this huge loan or something of that effect and they set before you papers and at the bottom of those papers you have to sign. You have to offer your signature on the left-hand side. But on the right-hand side there's a witness and, and there's a line there that goes for the witness and you sign your name on the left-hand side and then you come over here to the right-hand side beside witness and you sign your name again. Is that going to be valid? It's not going to be valid because there's no witness. How are we to know that? How are we to even know that? That's the, that defeats the purpose. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I'm in a legal courtroom type of setting. Sure, he can bear witness to himself, but in this situation, it requires witnesses. It requires witnesses who are going to verify, who are going to authenticate his identity, and his works. And that's exactly what he does over these verses. In verse 32, he says, there's, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Now, he's either referring to John right there, or he's referring to his own father. Regardless, he's about to extrapolate what both have said about him. So look at verse 33. He says, you sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. You know, he's talking about John the Baptist here as the very first witness that comes forward to testify about the identity of Jesus Christ. And John the evangelist, the gospel writer, writes in chapter 1 that John came forward to testify, to bear witness about the light. He was not that light, but he came to bear witness about that light. And what did John the Baptist say about Jesus Christ? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the witness that he gave. He says, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his sandals. That's how holy and pure and wonderful he is. He's the Lamb of God. And Jesus says, you follow John. You listen to John. He was a burning and shining light. He was a shining light because he shined the truth of God. He was a burning light because he brought the passion of God and the fire of God. You listen to him for a while, but apparently not any longer. Second witness that he brings forward to 
really affirm and authenticate is, is his own works. Look in verse 36. He says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, what do they do? Yeah, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Church, I want to make a, this is an important distinction. Sometimes we think that miracles, that either prophets or Jesus or others do or did, were somehow supposed to testify to the existence of God. That is not true. God's creation testifies to the existence of God. Okay, miracles attest to the person who is representing God. In other words, if a man performs a miracle of God, then what that miracle is doing is saying that whatever this message that this man is preaching, that's from God. Whatever lessons that he gives, they're lessons from God. Whatever truth that he teaches is truth from God. Look at the miracles that he's performing. Okay, so Jesus is doing that. My works, he's saying, my healing the sick and making the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and raising the dead and turning water into wine, all of that attests to the fact that I am from God. My works testify to it. And then, and then it says the Father testifies to it. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now it's interesting, look at the second part of verse 37. It says, His voice you've never heard, His form you've never seen. I think we understand the fact that His form you've never seen part, and that if we ever want to see God, then we have to look squarely at who? Christ. But it's interesting that He says that your voice, His voice you've never heard. Because when Jesus was baptized... The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Apparently they were either there or not there or they were unwilling to listen. They had hardened ears. But the Father has testified that this is His Son, His eternal beloved Son. But this is how He bears witness most powerfully and most clearly. Church, how does the Father testify to His Son through the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures. Look down at verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you have life. When I took my sabbatical back in May, we went to a number of different national parks. And one was the Grand Canyon. And if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon on the North Rim, you know that there is the Grand Canyon Lodge that you can go into and you can eat dinner in there and buy trinkets and memorabilia. But there's this room that has a bunch of couches. And there is this, this wall that contains three huge windows. 
and you can sit on the couches or just stand in front of the windows and you can gaze through the window to see the magnificent beauty of the Grand Canyon. You can see the different colors of rock, red, green, orange, yellow, brown. You can see the, the depths uh, all the way down into the river. You can look up at the clouds that are over above, the, the sun possibly going down from the west so that what you see is beautiful. But if you and I went to that room and I started looking at the window pane and started examining the caulk around the edge of the window and then the stones that were guarding the outside portions of, of those and started counting the stones and analyzing the caulk and then beginning to look at the thumbprints and handprints that little kids had placed at the bottom of the window. And I started examining every aspect of that window while you are standing right beside me. What would you say to me? Yeah, that's ridiculous. I'm missing the point, right? I need to look through the window to see what? The Grand Canyon. What the Jews did is that they analyzed the window and were unwilling to look through it to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you guys know that one of my heroes is Bishop J.C. Ryle. Lived from 1800 to 1890. I read him frequently, probably more than anybody else. I want to read to you a portion of what J.C. Ryle has to say about Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. In every part of both Testaments, Christ is to be found. Dimly and indistinctly at the beginning, more clearly and plainly in the middle, fully and completely at the end, but really and substantially everywhere. Christ's sacrifice and death for sinners and Christ's kingdom and future glory are the light we must bring to bear on any book of Scripture we read. Christ's cross and Christ's crown are the clues we must hold fast if we would find our way through Scripture difficulties. Christ is the only key that will unlock many of the dark places of the Word. Some people complain that they do not understand the Bible. And the reason is very simple. They don't use the key. To them, the Bible is like the hieroglyphics in Egypt. It's a mystery just because they do not know and employ the key. It was Christ crucified who was set forth in every Old Testament sacrifice. Every animal slain and offered on an altar was a practical confession that a Savior was looked for who would die for sinners. A Savior who should take away man's sin by suffering as His substitute and sin-bearer in His stead. It is absurd to suppose that an unmeaning slaughter of innocent beasts without a distinct object in view could please the eternal God. It was Christ to whom Abel looked when he offered a better sacrifice than Cain. 
It was Christ of whom Enoch prophesied in the days of abounding wickedness before the flood. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment on all. It was Christ to whom Abraham looked when he dwelt in tents in the land of promise. He believed that in his seed, in one born of his family, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. By faith he saw Christ's day and he was glad. It was Christ of whom Jacob spoke to his sons as he lay dying. It was Christ who was the substance of the ceremonial law which God gave to Israel by the hand of Moses. It was Christ to whom God directed the attention of Israel by all the daily miracles which were done before their eyes in the wilderness. A pillar of cloud and fire which guided them. The manna from heaven which every morning fed them. The water from the smitten rock which followed them. All and each were figures of Christ. The brazen serpent on that memorable occasion when the plague of fiery serpents was sent upon them was an emblem of Christ. It was Christ of whom all the judges were types. Joshua, David, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and all the rest whom God raised up to deliver Israel from captivity, all were emblems of Christ. It was Christ of whom David the king was a type, anointed and chosen when few gave Him honor. It was Christ of whom all the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi spoke. They saw through a glass darkly. They sometimes dwelt on His sufferings and sometimes on His glory that should follow. Listen to this. They did not always mark out for us the distinction between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. Like two candles in a straight line, one behind the other, they sometimes saw both the advents at the same time and spoke of them in one breath. They were sometimes moved by the Holy Spirit to write of the times of Christ crucified and sometimes of Christ's kingdom in the latter days. But Jesus dying or Jesus reigning was the thought you will ever find uppermost in their minds. I charge every reader of this message to ask himself frequently what the Bible is to him. Is it a Bible in which you have found nothing more than good moral precepts and sound advice? Or is it a Bible in which you have found Christ? Is it a Bible in which Christ is all? If not, I tell you plainly, you have used your Bible to very little purpose. You are like a man who studies the solar system and leaves out in his studies the sun, which is the center of all. It is no wonder you find your Bible a dull book. The reason the Jews loathed and sought to kill Jesus is because they had the Scriptures but did not look to the Savior who is found in those Scriptures. Jesus knew it. And He called them down. And He put them on the stand. You see, they were trying to judge Him. Who are they to judge the judge? Well, I think that makes the point clear enough of what He makes at the very end of the passage. They want to lift up Moses. They want to say, well, we follow Moses. We love Moses. We're all about Moses. You're not in line with Moses. 
And he's saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. Moses foretold me. Moses said there was going to be a greater prophet that's going to come after him. And yet, you are propping up Moses as if he's the deal. Moses, if he was here, would say, you have made the gravest mistake of your life by propping me up and wanting to kill Jesus. All right, so here we go, church. Here's the, here's the landing Right here. This is, what, this is what Jesus wants us to understand. This is what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. Jesus is the Father's authorized and authenticated Son. Jesus is the Father's authorized and authenticated Son who gives eternal life to those who believe and eternal judgment to those who don't. He is the Father's authorized and authenticated Son who gives eternal life to those who believe and eternal judgment to those who don't. Take that to the bank. I'm going to give you three applications here as a response. The first application I want to give to you is don't be a window examiner. You guys know what I mean by that. Don't, don't, don't take your Bible and just read it and, and, and get nothing out of it and try to obey a bunch of rules first. No. Look to Christ. Look for Christ. Ask the question, how does God want to show me the glory of Christ through the reading of this Scripture? And as you study the Bible with your family, with your spouse, with a friend, by yourself, look for Christ. Because Christ has said, you will find me if you search for me. Don't be a window examiner. Look through the window to see the beauty of Christ. Second, this is, this is very serious. Be warned or be warmed right now. Okay, so by warned... I mean, if you don't see in Christ your all in all, if He's not your life, if He's not your heartbeat, if He's not who you want to glorify when you wake up every morning and say, Lord, my life is not my own. I have surrendered my life. My life is now your life. I've exchanged all that I have and all that I am for all that you have and all that you are. I want to live for you. I want to speak for you. I want to act for you. I want to work for you. In response to what you have done for me, Jesus, I want to expend my life for your kingdom and for your glory. I want to honor you with the choices that I make, with the words that I speak, with the attitude that I have, with how I relate to the people who are closest to me in my life. I want to put on display that you are God's glorious Son. Okay, now, if you're there, if you're there, that's wonderful, but if you're not there and you see in Jesus somebody who died on a cross and you think He's a good tool, maybe a good motivating piece in your life when you really are down, or you think that maybe He's, maybe it's true and maybe it's not, right now you need to be warned. And you need to know that if you don't see in Christ your all in all, the very heartbeat of your life, then 
if you don't change, you're going to die. And then when Jesus returns, you're going to be judged by Jesus. And you're going to be cast into eternal judgment where the worm never dies, where it's outer darkness, where there is a fiery hell, and you will be punished forever because you rejected the authority and the authenticity of the Son of God. Don't do that. Don't do it. Be warned right now. And give your life to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Don't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow may never come for you. Now, if you believe in Christ, if you trust Him, if you love Him, if He's everything to you, then just be warmed right now. Be warmed in your heart and in your mind that you have a Savior who loves you so much that He came to live the life that you're supposed to live and that He rose from the dead and in doing so, He has risen your dead life from the grave and made you alive. You were dead in your trespasses of sins and He made you alive in Himself and you have eternal life. And the life that you now live is His life. There's no better life than the life of Christ. And let me tell you something, you have eternal life right now. Oh, it may not look as great and sometimes it may not feel as great as it will on the other side of this life, but right now you have the life of God in your soul because Christ has made you alive. Be warmed by that. And so the third thing I want to tell you to do is make much of Jesus. Make much of Him. In your heart, in your devotions, in your speech, in your conversations, in your actions, just make much of Christ. Speak of Him as much as you can. Live for Him as gloriously and as sacrificially as you can. He is the authorized and authenticated Son of God who has come to earth to redeem you from your sins. You go live for Him. Bow your heads with me if you will and let's just pray a prayer of thanksgiving to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ, Your authenticated and authorized Son who exercises judgment on those who don't believe in Him and exercises grace on those who do. We pray right now that You will help us to respond not only in this moment, but for the rest of our lives here on earth in adoration, praise, and worship for the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.